podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome along to the Two-Footed Podcast on Thursday, October 22nd, brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com. They can save you a whole bunch of money uh, rather than paying pay-per-view for football matches. So instead of paying pay-per-view, get yourself an IPTV and a VPN, and then donate a little bit of money, if you can, to your local food bank. Um... Today is Thursday, and Thursdays are are a tough day on this show. So one of the issues with doing uh, a daily Premier League podcast and having, you know, some restrictions on on what you can and can't do is that there's often just not a lot of news. And Thursday tends to be the day where it's a little bit tough to put this show together. Um, We could preview the games, but I'm going to do that tomorrow with with producer Guy. So today, I'm just going to pick up on some news, and maybe talk about some of the teams that I haven't really focused in on as much while doing this podcast as as I had hoped. As I said at the very start of this podcast, the purpose of me doing this was to talk about all 20 teams, not to focus in on my club or the big six or even the top half, but everybody, one to 20. So we're going to get through some teams today. Um, first thing I want to touch on, though, was the Mesut Ozil situation at Arsenal, because he has obviously released a statement where he's made it clear he believes it's outside influences that have caused him to be left out of the registered squad that Arsenal have put forward to the Premier League for this year's season. It's hard to, to dispute what he's said. It's hard to argue that Arsenal wouldn't be better off with him in their squad. This is an Arsenal team that do struggle greatly to create. Last season, they were one of the worst teams in the league from a creative standpoint. This season, they haven't been a whole lot better. Only eight goals so far this season. In the top half, only Wolves have scored less. Now, Arsenal have improved massively at the defensive end. It's still not great. It's still not even what I'd class as good. I don't think anyone other than Villa have been good defensively so far this season. I I would class good as one goal a game conceded or less. Arsenal just above that. But they have gotten a lot better defensively under Arteta. But going forward, they do struggle. And it's strange because they've got incredible attacking options in Lacazette, Nicolas Pepe, Aubameyang, obviously, Reese Nelson, Eddie Nketiah. Martinelli when he returns from injury of course they brought in Willian and one of the purposes of bringing in Willian was that he was to add some creativity to the team and in truth he has but he struggles when Arsenal are in this uber defensive mode like they have been against Liverpool and Manchester City where they sit back try and soak up the pressure and then they want to spring the counter-attack 
And the problem for them is there's nobody in that middle zone who can link the defense to the attack. That's probably what they got Danny Ceballos in to do, but he has failed thus far to provide that. And part of that is tactical. Part of that is how Mikel Arteta has used him. But in truth, it is just one of the failings that Ceballos has had since joining Arsenal. It's one of the failings he had at Real Madrid as well. Not in the same patterns of play, but his inability to be the creative player we saw when he was at Real Betis is partly why he's on loan at Arsenal for a second season. So it's very difficult to look at Arsenal and think, purely from an an attacking point of view, Mesut Ozil wouldn't improve. Of course he would. He's one of the most creative players in Europe. He has had spells at Arsenal where he's been outstanding. He has had spells where he's been a little bit non-existent, a little bit frustrating, where maybe his attitude hasn't always been 100% correct. But when I look at that Arsenal team, that is one of the things that I think they're crying out for. Another centre-back is is probably the bigger issue because for me, when you play David Luiz, you're always opening yourself up to the possibility of calamity. But after that, I do think a, a creative player, whether they play in the front three and just drop off into midfield the way you would expect Willian to do, but it must be remembered, Willian is more traditionally a wide player than a number 10. His creativity comes from carrying the ball and then slipping that last-minute pass or his crossing ability. It's not really dropping into midfield and then splitting the defence with a 25, 30-yard pass. That's not really his game. He can do it at times, but not consistently. Osel will do that all the time. Osel makes everybody around him better. And even when he's not playing well, he does make his teammates better. So it is difficult to look at the Arsenal situation and think that they wouldn't be better off and that maybe it is the fact that he's spoken out against the human rights violations in China, that the fact that there's so much Chinese money in the Premier League right now. It's hard to overlook that that may well be the reason why he's not in the Arsenal squad. And it's tough to take because... This is a guy who, from 2010 onwards, has been one of the best playmakers in the world. Now, obviously, over the last couple of years, that has dropped off. But there was a stretch where he was legitimately a world-class footballer. He was arguably a top 10 to 15 player in the world for a couple of seasons at Real Madrid. When Cristiano Ronaldo was going absolutely crazy and scoring 60 goals a season, a lot of it was coming from Mesut Ozil. So, for a player of his talent, who's been at the level he has, it, it's upsetting to see that at, at this point in his career, where he should really just be having the last couple of years of his real peak, that he's fallen off and that he's not in the team. He's not going to play till January, when he, when he will hopefully leave Arsenal. I've said before, I think Arsenal should have done better to get him out of the club. If they... They've, they've clearly known they weren't going to pick him in their squad. This isn't something that was just decided in the last week or two. This is something that was decided at the end of last season. And I understand that Arsenal, you know, tried to push him out and tried to get him to accept offers from Saudi Arabia and places like that. But 
if a guy has spoken out about human rights issues in China, he's definitely not going to go to Saudi Arabia. It's just not going to happen. He's clearly going to take the same issue with Saudi Arabia. Arsenal should have sat down and worked out a buyout with him. Just a termination of the contract. He earns $17.5 million per year. They could have sat down with him, I'm sure, and done a deal for 12 and just had him leave. And he could have gone and played wherever he wanted then. He could have gone to Turkey, maybe, and played for for Besiktas or for Besiktas or Galatasaray or Fenerbahce. Could have gone back to Germany. I know he has some issues there as well, but he could have gone to Italy. He could have gone to Spain. He would have had a number of clubs lining up to sign him. And he, he he could be playing football. Instead, he's not going to play football and he's missing out on the final couple of years of his career, of his peak. Because last season, obviously, he wasn't wasn't wholly involved either. Did have some did have some run under Arteta and, and looked impressive at times and seemed to be one that bought in quite quickly to what Arteta wanted, but it's fallen apart there. Um he's not the only high profile player who's not registered. Uh, Sergio Romero, who up until recently was Argentina's number one, uh, he hasn't been registered, which is a strange move. He's on over 100,000 a week, so he's just going to sit and rot because United blocked his, his path to Everton in the summer. Phil Jones, another one on over 100 grand a week that United are now paying not to play football. He's one that desperately needs to get away from United. He's still only 28 years of age, which is incredible considering how long he's been around. And Phil Jones is a good defender. If you play a low block with fullbacks who tuck in and aren't overly adventurous, don't ask your defenders to do too much. Just ask them to defend their role. Phil Jones can be a good player for you. If you're Burnley... Phil Jones can be a good player for you. If you're West Brom or Crystal Palace or Newcastle or even West Ham, if you're any of those clubs, Phil Jones can be a good player for you. Phil Jones struggles when he's asked to defend big spaces, and that's what happens at Manchester United. It's why we see Harry Maguire having the issues he's having now. But Phil Jones... It's often forgotten because he's become a figure of fun because of the facial contortions. But when Phil Jones broke through at Blackburn, he was seen as the next generation for England. He was going to be England captain. He was the next John Terry. He would be the leader of the team. He would be the best defender that England had. He had a choice of Liverpool or Manchester United. In truth, and I don't say this as a Liverpool fan because I'm biased, but in truth, at the time, Liverpool were the better were the better move for him. He made the wrong decision in going to United for two reasons. Number one, he went to a United team that already had established centre-backs in Ferdinand and Vidic. And he was never going to get into the team straight away. And what happened at United was he got played in midfield, he got played at right-back, he got some games at centre-back, then he was back in midfield, then he was back at right-back. 
And he never really developed in one position for the first couple of seasons. United also played a very high line. They asked their centre-backs to defend big spaces. And that didn't suit him. That's just not the style of play that suits Phil Jones. Liverpool, on the other hand, had Carragher, who was coming towards the end of his career, Agger, who was injury-prone, and Skirtle, who wasn't very good at all. He would have been into the team quicker in his preferred position of centre-back. He would have been developed there. And at the time, Liverpool played a deep block because Steve Clark was the defensive assistant manager. He played a deep block with four sitting in front. And that would have suited Phil Jones a lot better. And he could have gotten more games. He could have gotten games in a system that suited him, in a style that suited him. And he would have developed quicker in those early years. And then you could have expanded his game. Once he was developed as that low block defender, you could have expanded his game a little bit because it's not like he's slow. So having gotten all the basics down and having reached a certain level, you then could have gotten to defend bigger spaces as Liverpool became more expansive. The other factor is United were a title contending team. So the massive pressure at United meant that every single error, every little mistake was just magnified. Liverpool were fairly poor at the time. Liverpool were upper mid-table. Sure, they had ambitions for Champions League, but they weren't really close. They were upper mid-table. Let's have a good run in the cup. That's where Liverpool were at the time, and that would have suited Jones more. Because he would have learned from Carragher, who's, in truth, a similar type of defender, who could never have played in this current Liverpool team would have struggled in expansive football. But he could have learned from Carragher week in, week out, in that team, and developed with the team, and the team would have developed with him. It didn't happen. He went to United, and his career has been what it has been. He now finds himself very much on the outs at United. Injuries have played a massive part. There's no no question about that. But... When we consider Phil Jones, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, those facial contortions. It's always overlooked just how promising he was as a young player. Last season, he made two Premier League appearances. Two. I know he had some injuries, but he was fit for, he was fit for good portions of the season. Um, when you consider the players he was compared with back in the day, Duncan Edwards, uh, Fernando Hierro, like that's what he could have been. He could have been someone that was a ball player in a deep block, someone who could step out into midfield with the ball and been more than comfortable in that type of role. And I still think that player is there, not to the level it could have been. He he won't ever become, you know, England's number one centre back, England's captain, but he can still be a good, serviceable starting centre back for a number of Premier League clubs. And if United are willing to let him go on loan, then maybe that's what they should do in the summer, or in, in January, rather. Let him go out on loan, get some games for the last half of the season, and then next summer, you can look to sell him. Because he still has 
he still has almost three years left on his contract. His contract runs till 2023 because they gave him a brand new contract a couple of years ago. Might even have been last year. Um, I, I just think Phil Jones is far too good to be to be sitting around they, t- till 2023 and United hold an option for a further year. That's the contract they gave him February the 8th, 2019. I I just think it's a waste. I'd love to see Phil Jones playing regularly in the Premier League. Um, Socrates is another one that was left out by Arsenal. They had tried quite hard to sell him in the summer. Um, my understanding from what I've seen and spoken to Arsenal fans and, and a couple of journalists is that that was purely down to numbers where you can only obviously have a certain amount of non-homegrown players. And unfortunately for Socrates, he, he was just a victim of that. Um, Danny Rose, I don't understand how he's still at Tottenham. I really don't understand how he didn't get a move this summer. A club like Brighton, who could have done with a left wing back, Danny Rose would have been an upgrade on what they have there. Um, he would have started regularly for them. He could have gotten himself back in the England mix because it appears that Garrett Southgate is unaware of any left backs in the country. So if Danny Rose had gone somewhere and done well, he could well have got himself in the England team for next summer. He, you know, Brighton are not the only club that are badly in need of a left back. I would suggest that his former club Leeds United could have done with an addition at left back, at least for depth. But I think Danny Rose would start for them in that position. I would suggest that West Ham United could very badly do with a new left back. And Danny Danny Rose would have been a big upgrade on what they had there. West Bromwich Albion. I, I think there's just there's clubs that could have done with Danny Rose. He, he obviously didn't want to go to the championship. I think the problem with Danny Rose is that he still thinks he's where he was three years ago. And unfortunately for him, he just isn't. He has dropped off. But he's still a good player. And if given a consistent run of games, I still think he can be one of the three or four best English left-backs. Now, English left-backs, not left-backs in general in the Premier League, because the likes of Andy Robertson, Kieran Tierney, Luca Dina, these guys are on a different level to him. Uh, Alex Tellez now, who's arrived at United, he he's another one. But he could have been up there with, you know, Chilwell, uh, Luke Shaw, a couple of these guys. I think he would have made a good addition for West Ham, for Leeds, for Brighton, and for West Brom. And the fact that he's he's not even in consideration at Spurs is strange. And they can't even point to the homegrown quota because he is homegrown. Um, it's strange they didn't just buy him out at the end of the summer transfer window or, or in the middle of the window and just say, look, go find whoever you want to play for. Josh Onema is another one that's interesting. He's been left out by Fulham. Now, he is injured at the moment, but all word from Fulham is that it's nothing long-term, nothing serious. So, you know, it's he was an important player in getting them promoted last season. He played, he played 28 games in the league um, and got to help get them promoted. So, unless that injury is more serious, there's something strange going on there. Jean-Michel Serri is another one they paid huge money for um, the last time they got promoted. And he hasn't been registered to play. Which is 
massively disappointing because he's a very good player and at 29 he's right in the middle of, he's right you know in his prime um he, he's just a good player and he would improve that team now I know they are loaded in midfield which maybe explains why they've left out these two players but you know you, you have to find you, you you find a spot for someone like him when you're Fulham that's just the be-all and end-all of it. When you are Fulham, you find a spot for Jean-Michel Serri. Simple as that. Uh, Yannick Balassi is, is, is an upsetting one, given you know he's clearly working very, very hard in training. He clearly wants to play football regularly. The move to Everton has been a disaster for him. Um, they obviously paid big money to buy him from Crystal Palace. Uh, somewhere around 25 million. It's crazy that that's four years ago already, but it just hasn't hasn't gone well for me. He's played 29 league games in four years. He spent the last two years on loan, Aston Villa, Anderlecht, and, and Sporting uh, CP, Sporting Lisbon. They they went through a phase of just doing weird things. Everton did uh, buying players that didn't really suit how they wanted to play. And unfortunately, he is just a victim of that. And at 31, he is towards the tail end of his career. And he's had such a, a bizarre career. He was at Rushton and Diamonds, dropped into non, you know, went into to lower non-league, um, Hillingdon Borough. Then he was at, at Plymouth Argyle, had some loans from there at Rushton and Diamonds and Barnet, went to Bristol, went to Palace, and that's where he kind of took off and everybody kind of got eyes on him and, and he was really, really impressive for them in spells. Um, obviously joined them when they were in the championship and, and helped them come up and then establish themselves. Uh, and Everton paid uh, a lot of money, a lot of money to get him. And uh, it just hasn't worked. And it's a shame because he's lost the prime of his career uh, at a club that he doesn't want to be at. They don't want him. It's one that I'm surprised. I mean, I know he, he pushed hard to get a loan on deadline day, I think it was, wasn't it, to Middlesbrough, and it, it fell apart for whatever reason. Um, again, Everton, just just sort of buy it and let the guy go play football somewhere. He deserves to play football. Simple as that. Um, so that's, they're the players that are, are left out that I'm, I'm kind of highlighting. Um, for me, the big ones, Osel and Phil Jones are the two I feel the worst for and Danny Rose to it to an extent but Phil Jones just because his career hasn't gone how it should have gone and also because when he signed that massive extension that Arsenal pushed for uh you did think that that was it uh, the issues were out of the way and everything was going to be going to be smooth and look most people knew it was a mistake at the time most people felt they should have sold him it was clear he hadn't the Osel of, of Real Madrid wasn't the Osel that came to Barcelona. There was there was distinct drop off from that level to what he was. At his very best at Arsenal, he wasn't on the level he was at Real. But you know, when when they signed that extension, most people thought it was a mistake, especially the length of it and the money uh, and the money involved. But it it was the club's decision. You know, he's entitled to ask for whatever he wants. The club can say no. 
that is that is the club's mistake. And now they're paying for it, literally paying for it. They're going to pay him seventeen and a half million to sit on his backside and not play. Um, little bit of controversy on social media and such yesterday. Um, David Ornstein, who I think is is the best reporter covering the Premier League in terms of inside knowledge and transfers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He was on um, some sort of podcast. I'm not sure which one. Apologies. Uh, where and he said that. Oh, I think it was something to do with the Athletic, either a web chat or a podcast for the Athletic. And uh, he said that he had heard that the Virgil van Dijk injury was worse than what was being sort of released. And that what was released was that it was an ACL injury and that van Dijk was out for you know a considerable period of time. But Liverpool weren't ruling out the possibility that he could come back this season. Now, most... Uh, most switched on people sort of said, right, well, there's no chance he's going to come back this season. Like, if it's an ACL tear, it's nine months at a minimum. Even if he is ready to go by the end of May or the end of April going into May, unless Liverpool are in a really, really tight battle for the title, they're not going to bring him back. They won't risk him because even if you bring him back, it's going to take him a couple months to get up to speed. So... David Ornstein uh, said that he had heard that it was worse, that the injury was worse. Now, this got Liverpool Twitter all up in arms, outraged that they were not being told the truth by the club or that Ornstein, they felt, was making something up. Uh, Ornstein then tweeted five hours later, uh, to clarify, there's nothing from Liverpool or Virgil van Dijk to suggest his injury is worse than initially feared. It is. It was wrong to mention someone's health in a private situation. My apologies. As said in the video, uh, the priority is to wish Virgil van Dijk the very best in his recovery. Uh, Ask Ornstein is the name of the, the podcast video type thing. Anyway, he he really shouldn't have have said anything other than, you know, wishing him a speedy recovery. Because if he hasn't heard it from the club or from somebody connected to van Dijk, then it is just whispers in the wind. And while I would never, ever suggest that David Ornstein is making anything up or anything, because like I said, I do think he is the best reporter in the country. I think he, I think he's the one with the best insight, the best contacts, the best sources. Unless something like that is double and triple confirmed, including by someone either close to the club or close to the player. I really think that's something you should just keep your hat on. Because what it's done is it's gotten him a massive amount of backlash. And from people that think very highly of him as well. But it's also like it's creating unnecessary angst among a fan base. It's probably going to get to, you know, Van Dyke's friends and family, and now they're going to worry, oh, well, Ornstein says it's worse, so is it worse? And he's he's telling them, no, it's not, no, it's, it's an ACL. Oh, no, but Ornstein said. And this is, you know, what's going to stress people out. So um, just a word to the wise, if you, if you have something like that, just keep it to yourself. Don't don't put that that information out there. Even if you have heard it, even if you're fairly certain it's it's true, 
unless you're actually willing to report on it, and by report on it, I mean put it in print, then just keep it to yourself. It's the easiest course of action. Um, one little thing from yesterday, uh, when I had Lee Scott on, we mentioned the Louis Barry situation where he left West Brom, went to Barca, and then when, when leaving Barca, having not settled and returning to England, he signed for Villa and not West Brom. And myself and Lee were unsure as to why he would do that, and we didn't feel it reflected well on West Brom. Uh, thanks to Ross Wood, who is a Baggies fan, he reached out today and cleared it up. Uh, Louis Barry's family are all Villa fans, which is why he picked Villa. Uh, so that that explains that. It, it still doesn't... I still have concerns over what's happening at West Brom in terms of the supposed lack of a pathway or the fact that a lot of these exceptionally talented young players either want out before they get to first team level or shortly after getting to first team level. Um, You think back to Jerome Sinclair, Jan Danda. uh, What's the kid's name that is in Belgium now? Sado Berrihino. He's, you know, he was in the team 20 minutes and immediately wanted to move elsewhere. It's it's very strange. West Brom's academy is is one of the best in, in the country. And uh, the first team doesn't benefit from it a whole lot. There's a couple that make the first team, but then they tend to have this stagnation. Like Tyler Roberts. And then they end up shifted out for a couple of million here, a couple of million there, when these are believe me, elite young talents, and they're just not getting to where they should get. Um, right, as I said at the start, I wanted to talk about a couple of teams today that I maybe haven't uh, focused on as much, focused on to the level that I wanted to uh, this time, at this point into the season. So the first one is Sheffield United. Um, I thought going into this season that the Blades would be not as good as last year, but comfortable. I felt like second season syndrome is real. It will affect them. It will cause them to have some disappointing results, some little patches of form where it resembles the end of last season more than what what preceded the lockdown. But truth be told, so far this season, if I was a Blades fan, I'd be I'd be quite concerned about what I'm watching. Um, they just don't look like anything of themselves. They don't look like a team playing with the confidence they had last season, with the understanding that they had last season. It looks a little bit like they've been figured out, and I, I don't even think it's that. I really don't think that it's that they've been figured out. I think it is more that they've just stagnated quite badly and quite quickly. Um, I said at a point, what they need to do is start turning that team over and replacing some of the players that were with them in League One and the Championship with a higher calibre of player. You know, bring in more players of the potential of Sander Berger. Now, I think they did that this summer in both Jaden Bogle and Rian Brewster, but they're a little bit further away than maybe you'd like. And I did feel that they maybe missed out on not strengthening in their midfield. 
I think that was one area that they really needed to to look to bring in another player on Berger's level. I said for most of the summer that Baptiste Santa Maria was somebody I thought they would benefit massively from bringing in. Um, I don't even think they were considering him or looking at him, but when you consider that he went for, I think, 11 million, actually, I'm wrong. It was about 10 million euros, so about 9 million pounds. Um, that's easily a deal that Sheffield United could have pulled off. I mean, the midfielder they did bring in, uh, Ishmaela Koulibaly, they've sent on loan for three years. Three years to the Belgian club, Bearshot, who are owned by the same people that own them. Um, they spent a lot of money on Aaron Ramsdale. He's a young goalkeeper who's a little bit error-prone, wasn't particularly good last season, if if we're being honest, when he was at Bournemouth. In fact, I would go as far as say he was flat out bad. But he obviously came through with Sheffield United. Sheffield United have a very, very good goalkeeping coach. So they know him well, and I'm sure they feel they can they can develop him and, and, and get him to the to the required level. Uh, it remains to be seen, but he hasn't started particularly well. He's had some some good moments, he's had some bad moments, but it, it, that's an issue. Defensively, they got away with some of their players last year because the Premier League didn't know them. And what I'm seeing already is teams having spotted some of the weak points in the system. Maybe it's a player who's a half yard short of pace. Maybe it's a player who lacks a bit of technical ability on the ball and can be pressed and forced into turning the ball over. And unfortunately for Sheffield United, that's what's happening at the moment. And that's what leads them to have one point at this point in the season. Um, They've played five, drawn one, and lost four. And they could easily have lost all five. Like They could very easily have lost to Fulham. It took a very late penalty by Billy Sharp to get them that point. Now, I would say they deserve that point. But still, if Mitrovic keeps his foot down and doesn't kick through the back of Jack Robinson's leg, it's not a penalty. If Mitrovic scores his penalty, Fulham are 2-0 up at that time rather than 1-0 up. But you look at their other games, I mean, the, the Wolves game, they were 2-0 down after six minutes. They were probably... This arguably slightly the better team after that, but they never really came close to scoring. Um, they didn't really trouble Villa a whole bunch. I know they had the early yellow, or the early red card, and and they did well to maintain the game and only lose one nil, having played eighty odd minutes um, with, with ten men. But they weren't good that day. They weren't good against Leeds. They weren't good against Arsenal, and they weren't good against Fulham. And next up, they've got Liverpool, Manchester City, and Chelsea. And I have to say that right now, I'm concerned that Sheffield United aren't going to find themselves in a hole that they can't dig their way out of. They're lucky that at the moment, there's four clubs who've started the season terribly. Themselves, Burnley, West Brom, and Fulham. West Brom's slightly better with two points to the other three's one. But 
And then you've got Brighton who've got four points. So there's already a two-point gap there. Now, I know that's only, you know, if you, if you win one game, you can be above them. But that two points could turn into four points very, very quickly. And all of a sudden, a gap can start to grow very early on in the season. And we end up with a situation where we do have four teams who are just below everybody else by eight, 10, 12 points. That's a lot to try and make up. So I am concerned about Sheffield United. I think some of their fans, um, some of their notable fans on social media have been very arrogant about where things are going at the moment. And just brushing aside all concern and criticism. You haven't been good. You've been flat out bad so far this season. You've looked like a team that belongs in the championship. And you can laugh off you know, rumours that Chris Wilder might be under a bit of pressure. But the fact of the matter is he will be. I, I think he is safe as houses. There's no question about him getting sacked, I wouldn't imagine, unless they get very, very foolish. But you're in trouble. Like, you are in trouble, and you need to accept that. And Because you can believe that Chris Wilder and his team know that they're in trouble. So Sheffield United fans need to accept it as well. They're in bother this year. This season is not going well. And barring a quick turnaround, it's going to get ugly this season. It's going to be an absolute dogfight for them this season. I think the same is true of Burnley. Now, Burnley have played a game less. It's not like Burnley's game in hand is going to be easy. It's a home game against Manchester United that was postponed from the opening day of the season to enable United to have a little bit of an extended break after the European uh, endeavours at the end of lockdown or whatever that was that we, that we went through. Um, and United are good away from home. If that game was at Old Trafford, you'd probably fancy Burnley to get something, but United away from home are, are a, better, a better option than they are at home. So, again, Burnley will, could potentially find themselves with one point from those five games whenever that one gets gets rescheduled. Uh, and that's not good. And I think Sean Dyche, as I've said before, is one of the six or seven best managers in the league. But he was badly let down in the transfer market. He's dealing with a lot of injuries. He's got a very, very small squad. He had to play Eric Peters, who's a left-back, at right-back at the weekend because of the injury issues. It's It's not good for Burnley. It's not good for him. And Burnley are the type of club that if they go down, I don't see them coming back up. Sheffield United, I think, could go down and come back up. You look at their squad, and Sander Berger is probably the only one that wouldn't go down with them. I think Brewster would be would be open to, to dropping down the level. Uh, Mousset, McBurney probably would. All the midfielders, other than Berger, were championship players to begin with. Um, same with the wing-backs and the wing-backs they brought in in the summer, Lowe and Bogle, and the same with the centre-backs. Now, they've left themselves short in midfield. They've left themselves short at centre-back. Burnley have left themselves short pretty much everywhere. They have a really good goalkeeper and a really good backup goalkeeper. They've got three and a half good options up front in Chris Wood, Uh, Rodriguez, Jay Rodriguez and um, Ashley Barnes and then the half one would be 
Mattia Vidra, who I think is a good option in the Cups against lower league teams, but always struggles against Premier League teams. He's he's a really good championship forward. At Premier League level, he does struggle. You look at the defence, Tarkovsky's really, really good. Taylor's good. Me is To me, Ben Mee is just an average Premier League centre-back. The drop-off from him to what's behind him is fairly stark. It really is stark. And I do just wonder why, when they couldn't get Joe Worrell, why not sign Scott McKenna, who Villa, or who Forrest bought from, from Aberdeen? I think they paid $3.5 million for him. Surely you could have come up with $3.5 million. You know, why not go and try and loan Phil Jones? I, I guarantee United would have paid half his wages. I guarantee that. They paid like 60% of Alexis Sanchez's wages just to get him to go away. I guarantee they would have paid half United's wage or half Phil Jones' wages. You couldn't have afforded Phil Jones on 50 grand a week, 55 grand a week. Of course you could. And Phil Jones would have been a big, big help to them. I like their options in midfield. I think they've got three good midfielders in Cork, uh, Westwood and Brownhill. But they're all a little bit the same. They all do similar things. Maybe just somebody who's a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more box-to-box could have been a help there. You would have liked to have seen them bring in another wide player. like Someone like even Jack Clark on loan from Spurs could have been a help. Someone that can just provide width, beat a man, get crosses into the box. I would have liked another attacking option as well. But to me, West or Burnley had needs that they needed to fill this summer, and they didn't fill any of them. They didn't improve their team at all. And I think when everybody's fit, Dale Stevens probably doesn't even make the bench for them. So... You know, I, I get that he's a, a warm body to come in and count among the numbers and, and that, but that's your summer. Dale Stevens and Will Norris, who's going to be your third choice goalkeeper. Nothing against them, but it doesn't it doesn't improve you. You finished top half last season. Your transfer spend was nine hundred and fifty grand. That is an epic failure by Burnley, and and thus far Burnley have not been good. They have not been good this season. They were dreadful in their opening game against Leicester. They near bored me to sleep against Southampton, Burnley and West Brom. They look completely blunt in attack. They're back to relying on whip balls in for Chris Wood to try and score. There's no creativity in midfield. They're not getting McNeil involved anywhere near enough. And the problem for them is that if they go down, Pope will go, Tarkovsky will go, and McNeil will go, and all three will go for less than what they're worth. And a very small amount of that money will be reinvested in replacements. And the bigger thing is that Dyche will go. Sean Dyche is not going to manage in the championship. Sean Dyche is far too good to manage in the championship. They're lucky he's still there because he's had opportunities to leave in the past. But... Burnley's summer transfer window was the worst that anybody had, even worse than the calamity that United had, purely because they didn't even bother. 
And that has that has just followed them into this season, especially with the injuries. They haven't brought in players to cover for those injuries. They haven't improved what they had. And it's going to be another tough season. They've got Spurs and Chelsea next in their next two games. So that's not going to be easy. Now, they're lucky enough, both games are at home at Turf, Turf Moor. But no fans. So that's a big blow to them. Their fan base is one of those that does create a hell of a racket, that does really spur that team on, that is incredibly loyal and passionate about their local club. But it's going to be a slog of a season. They're another one I didn't think were going to have any problems this season. I knew they'd drop off, but I figured they'd be kind of comfortably in the middle of the bottom 10, probably right next to Sheffield United. Well, they may end up next to Sheffield United. They may very well end up next to Sheffield United. It could be that both of them go down or that one goes down and one stays up by the skin of their teeth. Um, Those two are providing hope to Fulham and West Brom. I, I think West Brom left themselves badly short at the back this summer. But I think, and I think Fulham maybe could have done with more in attack. I like what they did. I like Loftus-Cheek. I like Luckman. I said before, they made good signings. My concern with them is just whether you get the full buy-in because they're loan signings. But in a normal season, I think they would be dead to rights. I think they'd be written off already. But Burnley and Sheffield United, having had such terrible starts and having difficult runs of games coming up, really does give them some hope. Like, if Fulham and West Brom could both pick up a couple of wins in the next three games, they could open a bit of a gap to Burnley and Sheffield United. And while I, I would back both Burnley and Sheffield United to close that gap over the over the season, it does give Fulham and West Brom that little bit of cushion that one of them maybe could could escape. Um, at the bottom half of the league is just so strange this year. Like, I, I thought Brighton would be really good there. Another team that left themselves short. The next team up then is United, who've been outstandingly bad. Like, remarkably terrible. They, Fair enough, they were better against Newcastle. That had far more to do with how Newcastle approached the game than how United played. But against Palace, against Brighton, and against Spurs, they were just awful. Then you have Palace, then you have Newcastle, Southampton, bizarrely Manchester City. It's Who would have thought that after four games, City and United would be in the bottom half? Not many. Not many, but they're there on merit. Like, they do, they deserve to be there. You know, like City, City have dropped points against Leicester and against... Leeds, they were deservedly hammered by Leicester, and Leeds should have beaten them too. They should be sat right next to United on six points, not one point ahead on seven. They have not been good this season. Now, I assume City will pick things up because they're City, it's Pep, they've got the players, but it's not been a good start for them. Liverpool are already three points clear. Now, I know the City have the game in hand, but you know, it, it, that's against Villa, who've been really, really good this season. Um, the bottom half is, is just crazy this year. But 
I do have big concerns over Sheffield United and, and Burnley. Concerns I didn't think I would have. And concerns that many Sheffield United fans, like I say, including high-profile fans or well-known fans, just seem to be too arrogant to accept the problems in your club. It just is. That'll do me. That is me for today. Thank you, as always, to producer Guy Drinkle. Thank you to Fox Hunt for the title music. Thank you to you for listening. Um, tomorrow, it'll be me and Guy previewing the weekend's games and uh, doing my predictions, which, as always, will be dreadful. There's no other word for them. They're dreadful. Uh, but that's it. That is the show today. Thank you very much. I will see you tomorrow. Podcast Network.